Good morning, sir. Good morning, Ben. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm feeling very bassy today. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little earlier uh, in the day for us. So yes, normally a 4 p.m. call, but we're at a 10 a.m. call uh, because mm-hmm. we have a guest who is in a different time zone. We do a very esteemed guest with us today. Yeah, I I think today's guest is um, kind of a testament to putting out things on the internet mm, and yeah. then letting interesting people find you when you do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about this person, who they are? Sure. So we are joined by Rob Fitzpatrick. How's it going, Rob? Oh, it's going great. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me. Of course. And Rob is the author of a book called The Mom Test, which has come up the last couple episodes of The Art of Product and was kind of featured in my recent level retrospective because it had a kind of a major impact on the way that I thought about kind of my journey on validating the idea for level and was a bit of a turning point for me when, you know, when I read the book, I was like, "Uh Oh, I think I have, I think I have some bad data on my hands. And that's what kind of set me off in the direction of, uh, of doing another round of calls and and kind of learning some more things. So Rob, thank you for writing the book. And uh, it's been super uh, helpful to me. Good. Well, thank you for reading it. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been fun to see all the people taking it. I thought it was like I'm a super introverted techie, or at least I, I started out that way. I've developed some talking to human skills in the the time since, but I thought it was for people just like me. And I've been blown away that it's like you know it seems to have a slightly broader broader scope. Yeah, yeah. Rob, just in case you're curious, um, so this book found me through one of our customers, and I can't remember. Like I sent an email being like, "Oh, I'm trying to figure out how to do this." or like develop this feature or something. And he was like, Oh, you should read this book. It's it's good, a good book about interviewing people. And so I read it. And then I talked to Derek, and I recommended he read it. And then Derek wrote this blog post. And then you saw that he had read it. And now we we're all together. As it was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. So your, your word of mouth engine is working. Yeah. When I first encountered the book, uh, the thing I liked about it was it was not your typical nonfiction business book, in that I read it in like a sitting and a half, and felt like it got straight to the point. And was like it's, basically it's on had, the shorter side. Yeah, I felt like it was kind of like I have this point to make uh, and some specific recommendations because of this point, and then I'm going to get out of here and be done, uh, <laughs> as opposed to adding an extra like 90 pages of. And now I need to make the size of this book look reasonable. Yeah, I actually one of the reasons I self published. I was talking to publishers and they offered me deals, and and the book's 35,000 words, and they said, "Yeah, this is great. Just uh, make it 50,000." And I was like, it doesn't need 50. You know, I'm just wasting people's time if I do that. And they're like, but all good business books are 50. And I'm like, well, so you've, you've published shorter books that haven't sold. And they've like, oh, no, why would we ever do that? Shorter books don't sell. And I was like, but you have no data. You're telling me you have no data. And they're like, oh, no, of course, we would never do that. And I was like, man, you guys, you don't, you don't know your own industry. You don't know your own product. There's no way I'm signing over like anything I do to these, these guys. They were, they were lunatics. So I did it on my own. And yeah, it's shorter. And I was able to be a bit fast and loose, you know, like put in silly jokes and stories and stuff. And, uh, but I don't know. Yeah, I believe in the core message. I'm glad it got through to you guys. Totally. I can't remember if I, I used this analogy on the podcast, but it feels to me like, imagine someone comes to you and is like, hey, we should make a product. You're like, that sounds great. Like, okay, like, what should it do? Like, well, I don't know, but it should be 50,000 lines of code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like l- literally what they told me. It's such a clueless industry. Um, I'm sure not everyone in it is clueless, but uh, the, the publishers I talked to are a bit, bit backwards. And something else I found is they don't test books. Like business books don't get tested. Um, they have them proofread for uh, 
you know, is it legible? Does it have typos? But they don't have a single like test reader in most cases read the early drafts. So, you know, I, I must have had like 100 people go through it. And I was like, it blew their minds. They're like, how do you afford that? And it's like, well, I mean, they, they care, you know, like people want it. It's like the way you would talk to any customer. It's like you wouldn't launch a, a product with. Yeah, I don't know. The, the whole thing is just so crazy. They're 20 years behind. Hmm. That's so interesting. Really interesting. They should probably read the book. They should probably read the mom test for their own processes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've covered uh, the, the thesis a little bit of the book on the podcast, but do you want to maybe give it your, your proper treatment real quick? Yeah. The idea is that everyone goes like, okay, like Steve Blank says, I need to go talk to customers. Paul Graham says, I need to go talk to customers, find out if my idea is good. So they go out and they ask literally that. They go, hey, what do you think of my idea? Hey, what do you think of my vision? Hey, isn't this problem super annoying? And people get hyped up. They're like, wow, yeah, like the entrepreneur's superpower is that we can get people to support us. You can get people to support you well before you deserve to be supported because they buy into the vision and they buy into you and your skills and your passion. And the other side of that sword is that it's super hard to get early feedback because that passion pollutes everything, all the data you're trying to collect back in. So the reason the book has this title is people are like, okay, so don't ask your mom if your business is a good idea because she's biased. And my response is like, don't ask anyone if your business is a good idea because everyone's biased, not as much as a close family member, but certainly to largely super biased. And so there's this idea of like the burden of truth. When most people ask feedback, they put the burden of truth on the customer. They go, it is your job to tell me the truth. And the whole thesis of the book is like, flip that. Put the burden of truth on yourself. Take responsibility for asking questions in a way where these biases can't even come up in the first place. Ask questions so good that not even your mom, the most biased, most supportive person can possibly lie to you. So it's about structuring the questions and structuring the conversations rather than just expecting people to be honest to you. Because pe- people can't be honest. Like, how many New Year's resolutions have you broken? And that's your sacred, honest promise to yourself. You know, it's like, we're just not good at predicting future behavior. Oh, that's so true. And, and I've, I've experienced this firsthand a lot of the time. Like, even like close friends who trust me and who I trust and have a good, I have a good rapport with, if they're like, hey, I have this idea for this thing, what do you think? It is really hard for me to not be like, I don't think you should do that. Like, it's, it's, it's just so hard to, to get that out. <laughs> but even if you do hate it, like, so what? Like, I hated the idea of Instagram, and then I used it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I really like that. And if I'd given my honest, if someone had done an interview with me, it's like, hey, I'm making this app for a phone. What do you think? Do you have this problem? No, I would have said, like, no, I hate everything about it. I would never use it. I don't care at all. Because I truly don't know. It's like, it, like it's so hard to predict. But if they'd asked me about what I already did, it's like, hey, how do you deal with photos? Why do you do it that way? What else have you tried? What do you, like if they got into my past behavior and then made their own jump. And that's scary because it's still risky. Um, I think we want our interviews to give us perfect certainty. Um, and I got so much comfort once I realized like I'm never going to get perfect certainty from a customer conversation. The best I can do is understand them like I understand my friends. And then you come up with a product. It's like a visionary leap, just like buying someone a birthday gift. They might hate it. But like you've got a better chance of them liking it if you understand them compared to buying a gift for a total stranger. Yeah, and I think one of the trickier parts of this, too, is that like it becomes more exaggerated of a problem for you as the product person as you kind of grow an audience. You have more people following along with your journey. And I think that's kind of what bit me, too. It's like I go on this podcast every week and talk about. Uh, the things I'm working on. And I published this manifesto to the world, putting a stake in the ground of like, this is this is the problem I see in the world. Not too far in the specifics, but it was very much like a bold claim. And that generated so much response. And I even got people to pay me money. It's funny, I had a guy email me um, after I published the retrospective. 
And he was like, I just want to say, I'm so sorry for giving you my money. Because, <laughs> because he's like, he's like, I, if I could rewind time, I would tell you, like, I just want to like pay you because I so much believe in you as a person, but like, I don't want you to take this as like, it's like, I probably am not going to actually buy your product. It's, but it's such a trap because I remember early on when I was trying to build startups back in like 2009, no one knew who I was. I got more brutal honesty back then. It actually served me pretty well, I think. And I, you know, was able to pretty quickly shut things down if they were not, if they're not resonating. But these days it's, I feel like it's a lot harder because so many people just want to, just want to be supportive. It's nice when you're going into a new industry, if nobody knows you, I mean, it's hard and it sucks in a lot of ways, but at that point, even someone agreeing to take a meeting with you is like pretty serious validation. Cause it's like the problem statement, the, the way you, the language you've used, like that's hitting some sort of nerve that they're willing to risk some of their day on a stranger. Once you've got something to offer, if you're unusually beautiful or famous or successful, like anyone will meet with you, you know? So like that stops being validation. And it's like, so you need to like set the bar higher. It's like, yeah, it's funny that uh, even, even the money lied to you. I, I don't yeah. think I've reached that level quite yet. People don't <laughs> give me money for nothing. <laughs> well, Derek is unusually beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Emphasis on the unusual part. <laughs> when I started Level, my first step was to kind of publish this this piece, this like, I called it the manifesto. And it was just like, here's a problem I see in the world and tried to get you know, people nodding along with it and feeling really compelled by it. And I'm wondering now, like looking back, do you feel like that was premature or that like tainted the well for me being able to have useful customer conversations? Or if not, like how might you you think about like approaching untainting that well? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's just a different task. There's like the starting to build the marketing and the community and the audience and the list. And that's super valuable. And I think it's been kind of well established by people far smarter than me that the earlier you can start doing it, the better. Uh, you know, that just helps make everything you do more successful. Um, but then there's also the learning side. And maybe those audiences aren't the same. Like maybe it's not the same groups of people. You're like starting to build your like marketing list and maybe, maybe there is some stuff to learn. It's such delicate phrasing sometimes and little things. Like if you've got a list, you go, okay, well, these people are all over the world. So I'm going to talk to them on Skype. And then you're setting up Skype conversations. But one of the problems with our video calls is that you need a good reason to have a video call. You need to kind of set an agenda. And when people are on them, they're in a hurry to get off of them. And so it's kind of like, okay, what's this about? Like, oh, you're going to ask me some questions. Okay, question one of five. Um, just the medium adds this this whole layer of formality where if you can create a casual enough context, like if I was in your shoes, I'd be like, cool, I'm doing my internet thing. That's my marketing. Cool, that's rolling. Now, like, let me find some real live like humans in, in meat space and like just talk to them in a, in a place where they don't have an agenda and they don't think I have an agenda and we're just like hanging out. And, you know, you were replacing Slack. So like loads of people use Slack. And the nice thing about that is you can go to literally any co-working space and talk to little, literally anyone there and you're having like a potential customer conversation. Um, my, my co-founders used to joke that my version of customer development, they called it cocktail custev because I usually had a, a drink in my hand. And one of my big strategies is I would go to a bar near where my customers would be. So I would go to a university bar if I was trying to sell to universities. They have like professor bars. I'd go to the bar right next to the big ad agencies when we were trying to sell to media companies. And I'd sit at the bar when people posted up or were waiting in a queue, I'd be like, hey, man, weird question. How do you deal with this? Like, this is killing me. Um, and they would talk and we'd be like, cool. And I'm like, oh, thanks so much. And it's like three minutes long. 
I, I think also setting up like a 30 minute interview is like also super toxic. Like all these things just throw so much bias into the mix. I, w- I would have just done two different things. I, d- I don't think you need to not do the manifesto. It's just, it doesn't replace the face to face casual conversations. Now, something I have to be careful about as I try to like correct my course from what I did on the previous thing as I'm starting something new. I'm, I feel like I, I'm seeing in myself that I want to this time really go by the playbook and do things, uh, do things the quote unquote right way. And, but the, the tricky part with startups is that like there, there really is no playbook. There are frameworks to follow, right? <laughs> Even something like this, there's a kind of a set of uh, good ideas around how to have these conversations, but there's no one true way to do it all correctly. Yeah. And another huge issue is that you'll get different amounts of benefit from it, depending on the type of product you're building. Like the more well-defined the problem is that you're solving, the more value you can get out of customer conversations. So like if you're building a, the Segway or Uber or a video game, like you can't go to a customer and be like, Hey, do you like having fun? It's like, how do you, how would you feel about a bicycle with the wheels beside each other? You know, it's like, you, you can't ask these types of questions because they're not solving an explicit problem. They're like a 10x improvement on, in theory, on like whatever they had before. It's like in the case of a video game, it's a nice to have in most cases. Um, and, and so those are like very product led. Like you might talk to someone to understand why they bought this and not that, or you might, but like in that case, you need the prototype ASAP. Whereas if you're building the stuff like Steve Blank was building when he wrote Four Steps to the Epiphany, like enterprise software solving well-defined explicit problems with a clear budget behind them, you can learn everything just by talking to people. So it's like, I think one of the irresponsible things that the startup community has done, and I've been part of this when I was younger and more excitable, um, is we try to overgeneralize these tools and we see that they work really well in one context and we, we assume they'll work equally well in each context. Um, whereas it's much more like a tool bag and each tool has like a different type of business and time of the business where it's really powerful and you like, you know, but it's hard. How do you teach that? How do you teach the wisdom to reach for the right tool? It's much easier to be like step one, step two, you know, do this, then do this. Looking back, I could have I could have probably gotten enough information early on if I had followed kind of the mom test playbook a bit like I probably could have convinced myself that this is too risky of an idea for for the kind of goals I have as an entrepreneur like it was too too big of a audacious of a plan once I set down that path it became very difficult to get accurate feedback about people about whether they were going to actually use the product because it so much depends on like well how do the mechanics of the product feel they're like I like this in theory but I can't really tell you until I put my hands on it but then the tricky part is like I spent you know a solid year of development effort time just to kind of get up to baseline usability, basic product mechanics working together, because turns out it's a lot harder to build a real-time chat tool than, <laughs> than I originally thought. Like you said, like not all ideas are are you know equal in scope. And this one I think proved to be just too long to even build an MVP because given the resources I have and stuff, like it just I needed to get this far just for people to put their hands on it, then to be able to tell me like, yeah, these mechanics don't feel quite right for my team, you know? Yeah. And like the switching stuff, like switching away from another and like the, um, the lock-in of teams and all this stuff. Like, yeah, yeah you, you were up against a ton of difficulties there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, one of the things that like when I started out and then I think my first company, we started in 2006 and we went through YC and we raised money and we had big customers and then we failed like four years in. 
And then right in the middle of that was when lean startups started becoming big. That was breaking through like 2010. And it led me to a sort of like idea nihilism, if this makes sense, where I was like, the idea doesn't matter at all. It's like 100% the journey and the future's unpredictable. Therefore, just like screw it, grab something and start building it. And to no one's surprise, like the next few things I built did not get off the ground, you know, or I would build them and they'd kind of get off the ground and I'd start having customers and doing customer support. Then I'd be like, wait, I hate this business. Why did I build this? And and I'd shut it down real quick. And I've realized that like the idea matters a lot. And it's so it's like what you said is it's not like a good or a bad idea in a vacuum. It's a good or a bad idea for where I'm at as a founder, like at that particular moment. And what are my goals and what are my lifestyle constraints? And like, how much money do I have that, you know, it's like all these things. It's like, you can't predict if an idea is going to succeed, but I think you can definitely predict what that idea is going to feel like on the way towards success or failure. That's like a five-year view into the future. Like, oh, I will have five years feeling like this. Do I want that? You know, it's going to be two years before I even know if this works. Like my background's in video game programming and video game design. And I would never do that as a career. I would never build that as an entrepreneur because you're comp- the, the, the business path for that is like, okay, work really hard for three years and then you find out if it worked or not. It's like the worst industry ever. Um, there's just no way to de-risk it. That's a good way to think about it. I've started thinking about different ideas on kind of a, like you said, a scale of, of risk and that it's like, how much risk am I willing to take on? And level, it turns out, was very risky on many fronts. One, because of just the time to building the MVP and the switching costs and all those things. In some other context, if I were going out and raising venture capital and building out a whole team, like this may actually not be that that risky of a proposition. So it's super founder dependent. And so what I've started to do now, before I entertain any idea, I'm trying to come up with like a list of filtering criteria. So some of those things on my list are like, does this is this going to need a native experience on all platforms? Like I have to build web and iOS and Android. That's probably not a good fit for me. Is this like absolutely mission critical to the operation of a business? Meaning like, you know, we got to have five nines of uptime or else people are going to be having a really bad day. I'm trying to try to build up these things that would just eliminate certain ideas because it's so it's so hard to merge. I feel like these practical concerns that you have and then also being like passionate about the problem that you're solving because I was super passionate about the level problem. and I still am. But it just turns out like the business is not <laughs> the, the kind of business I need to build to solve that problem doesn't align with my lifestyle goals. So it's, it's really tricky. One of mine is I, I've realized that I, I am a terrible manager and I hate management. And so that really limits the type. So I don't want to build companies where I need to build a large team. So then you go, OK, um, I don't want to quite be a solopreneur. You know, it's like, cause I don't want to build the whole skill set. I don't have the whole skill set. Um, but you go like, okay, what are like things that if they work, I don't need to grow the team. Like what are things where I can still, I don't need to be on, on, on the call constantly for customer support or there's like all these weird little criteria that I didn't even consider at the, at the beginning, but now 12 years on, it's sort of like, well, I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, rich after the first company. So I got to think of this like a career. And then you go all the considerations you'd think of when you're picking a job go into picking the idea. It's like, oh, well, Google's got this cafeteria and Airbnb, he's got this roof terrace. And like, which one is like the life I want for the next few years? And you go, well, you can kind of think of ideas in the same way. Yeah, I I love that. I kind of feel like the process of me aging and gaining wisdom is mostly about understanding the nuance and different choices as as I get older. And, And also like realizing like almost failure modes where it's like until you 
rent an apartment that has neighbors that scream at each other. You don't stop and think like, <laughs> hey, what are the neighbors like in this neighborhood? Until you sit in an airline seat that can't recline because it's in the exit row or whatever. Like you don't understand that that's part of like the decision criteria. And I feel like for me, just like I'm slowly gaining more and more nuance and picking things that I didn't realize I needed nuance in. And, and just as we're uh, ready to retire, we'll, we'll, we'll have all those criteria figured Absolutely. out. And I'll be the pickiest, most obnoxious old man ever. <laughs> That's why we all, we all get so jaded, I feel like, over time. Like, it's just, it's just a matter of how quickly we get super jaded. <laughs> well, I was thinking about this programming course I did, Rob, where you're talking about the lean startup showing up and how you sort of flip from like, well, the, you know, the idea is everything to the idea is nothing. And there's, there's some sort of middle ground. And also like these tools have different strengths and weaknesses. And this is something that I've been able to come to in programming, which is there are all these techniques you can employ and none of them are perfect or always right. They all present a series of trade-offs. And so when I built this course, it's like, let me, I'm going to try to present the trade-offs for everything I'm talking about here. And then unfortunately the the reader has to uh, then do the hard work of deciding which trade-offs are right. But that's the only really that's the only way to do it. Like that nuance is everything and you just kind of can't simplify that fundamental complexity away. <laughs> For a while I thought it would be like every blog post should start with like a personality type. It's like this 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 advice is for INTJs or I mean I don't know, whatever personality framework you use. Um, and I've done that. I found I like filter a lot like I used to ignore the author because I was like, the author doesn't matter. All that matters is like the the content of what they've written, which I'll learn from. But now I think about the author a lot because like what they see as good advice and even the good goal, like all the advice rattles down from the goal they have. Like that comes out of like what life do they want for themselves? And it's like if they want a very different life from what I want, they're going to end up having a totally different set of criteria, set of goals, set of advice. And so I've started really like almost like judging, like not, not in like a, a mean way, but like, uh, do I want the life this author has? If not, I probably don't need to listen to them. Love it. Considering the source. Makes and sense. I get a lot of like, I've had a flood of response to the, the, um, the article that I published. And I feel like the, you know, the hacker news snarkiest comments that I got back, <laughs> I did a little bit of digging on some of them. It's like, yep, universally true that everyone who's telling me like, well, this uh, you obviously should have just followed the this and this framework. It's, it became clear that the, none of these people had actually ever done a startup themselves. They just read, they just read the literature, you know? Yeah, it's and, so hard. I mean, I literally wrote the book on customer conversations and I still screw them up constantly because like you get excited. You're like working on this thing you're so passionate about. And you're like, you're like talking to someone, you're like, how do you deal with this? And they're like, honestly, I don't care at all. You're like, <laughs> you, know, you, you just want to like convince them. It's like, it matters. Why, right. why don't you care? Like, right. let me show you. And then it's like, you just blown all your learning out of the water. And it's like, wait, wait, sorry, I got excited. Um, so I find I still make all these mistakes. It's just sometimes now I'm able to catch myself while it's happening. And, you know, yeah. I bet you did some research while you were writing this book to kind of look around at other companies and stuff. Do you have a sense for how many people actually go through a rigorous process like this and how many companies are just kind of like they kind of luck themselves into like a successful business <laughs> um a lot of well every accelerator wants every team to go through this process i don't know i'm not like i've seen it vary a lot country to country so i spent a couple years um i set up a little ed education agency called founder centric i wanted to do something just like 
cash flow positive and whatever. I was happy to do services for a bit. And we did that for about three years. We basically helped set up a bunch of um, the education programs inside of accelerators through Europe. We like started in the UK and then like each year, the next year we were in like Central Europe, then we're in like Central Eastern, and then we're in Eastern. Um, and then we're sort of like, okay, everyone knows the basics and the, the, we, we went our separate ways. Um, and so I saw a ton of accelerators and they're like, yes, ev- like the investors, the early stage investors were like, every team needs to be doing this. But in some cases I talked to a team and they're like, they were clearly building like the equivalent of a video game. And it's like, you're actually not going to get that much. Like, like the, um, the investors in this case had like found something that was going to be a good fit for like 80% of the teams or 70% of the teams. And they're like, everyone must do this all the time, no matter what. And I was like, when I talked to those individuals, I was like, you don't really have to like, <laughs> and so it, it, it's hard. I've been surprised though, some bigger companies starting to give it to a lot more people and in non-founder roles. So um, like Shopify, Skyscanner, um, a few others, like companies that I thought would be well past this. They're kind of like, well, everyone on the team is making these little decisions that add up to being the product, like a little choice about copy, a little choice about advertising text, a little choice about like which button goes where. And they're sort of like, we can't just do like a user test from the user experience team and then like pass that information on. Like everyone needs to be able to engage the people doing support requests. So they're trying to train up like everyone inside their teams. Um, I've been doing some stuff with HP as well, like in their uh, 3D printing and some of their other like interesting new departments. And they're like, yeah, it turns out market research doesn't work if like the category doesn't exist yet. Um, what do we do about this? And I, I don't know, like I can't get like, I can't be like, it definitely works because of this, but I, I don't know. Smart people seem to be doing it and continue doing it. Yeah, um, I, I certainly will if I'm building something that's solving an explicit problem. But like I made a board game and I didn't do it because right. like, why would you? Right. So I'm not married to it, but it's a good tool. Yeah, that's actually a really good point that you bring up, too, that I think this framework in here is kind of not it's not only for at the early stage of coming up with an idea for a company thinking about like my previous startup called Drip. We started out on on one path that that turned out to be very different than how we ended up. <laughs> so we started out with just simple like email capture and sending an autoresponder follow-up thing and then we would like shuffle your subscribers into Mailchimp or some other system. That was kind of the the initial hypothesis with that and we did a, you know a little bit of validation but not a crazy amount and then we just kind of started building the MVP and it turns out that didn't really resonate with a lot of people but we kind of had our ear to the ground and and gradually shifted the product features in the direction of automation and all kinds of stuff until we found product market fit but i feel like a framework like this where presumably to get to that point you still have to be listening to customers and i always talk about like how important it is to when customers send you feature requests, it's like try to get to the root of the problem, right? Not just listen to what they're requesting, but like, why are you requesting that? People like to tell you their problems in the form of a proposed solution. And it's like getting, you know, a couple layers below that. And I think, you know, what you have in your book could be really useful even for like product people in established companies to still like try to get to the root of, of what people are wanting or need. I found it as such like a multiplier skill. Um, like I'd much rather be at my computer coding than I would or writing or whatever than I would like out in meetings and talking to people and meeting strangers, but it's just so valuable. It feels like sometimes the fastest way to move my code forward is to go have a chat with someone. And like, that was a real tipping point for me. The other big tipping point was when I realized that they didn't hate talking to me because <laughs> actually sometimes they like learned from the conversation and I was actually adding value or they enjoyed talking about the frustrations of their life. 
And at first I thought I felt so guilty. I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm asking all these people to give me their time for nothing. I don't even have anything to show them. And I was like, oh, wait, like over time I realized like, no, if they care about this problem and if I'm trying to fix it for them, that's a conversation they want to have. Not 100%, but like a, a decent percentage. Um, and you don't force people into talking to you. You find the people who do want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> How do you think about getting a good sample size? Like, do you have heuristic on like roughly how many conversations you need to have? Or does it kind of just depend on like, do you get a sense as you go through if you're feeling pretty confident in your findings? statistical significance is definitely a trap in this case you're never going to get it um so there's like two rules of thumb you can use or two approaches um in the ux community they they say like keep interviewing until you stop hearing new things so it's just a point of diminishing returns they're like you stop hearing new things you've probably heard all there is to hear great like make your decision kick the product forward a little bit once the product's kicked forward you'll be able to have a new set of conversations and start hearing new things that works fine. Um, another uh, way I like to think about it for like slightly more mature products is um, it's not a number of conversations full stop. It's a number of conversations per week or it's a number of hours you're going to spend in conversation per week. And you look at it like real skeptically and you go, how many hours am I actually going to be happy spending? And how many hours are my developers actually going to be happy spending? Maybe that number is one hour per week and maybe you can find a way to make it easy on them. Uh, like at Songkick, they wanted their developers to be more in touch with end users. And so they invited the most active users in for a party at the Songkick offices every Friday. Work stopped after lunch. A bunch of their most passionate active users came in. They had a band, live music, tons of beer. Everyone stops working. Yeah, spend four hours, hang out with their users, party. Meanwhile, they're pulling users aside to do user tests in a room being filmed they compile that into a, a clip of highlights. They play it for the whole team on the Monday standup. Um, so that was enough. That was their solution. They're not like, we can't send our developers to interviews and we can't interview our customers because our customers are just consumed. They're just people who like music. They're not like, no one's going to take a meeting with us. So like, what can we do? How can we make it so it's not awkward or time costly for our team? And so that the customers don't feel like this is an imposition. It's like, hey, party, great music, awesome solution. Um, it's like they weren't there with clipboards and interview scripts. They were just like, hey, you know, you like Songcake. Tell me more about that. Hmm. So, Rob, I'm in this interesting situation where I'm making a product. It's a desktop client, and we've been building it on Mac right now. And we get requests a lot from people for a, uh, a Linux client. Originally, I would be like, okay, this is totally validated. You know, like if someone, people keep asking us for a Linux client, that means we should build one. And now I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Thanks for the request. Hey, what what is some other software that you pay for for Linux? And they're like, uh, <laughs> well, I guess nothing right now. And I'm like, cool, got it. Thank you. <laughs> and like, that doesn't mean necessarily that we won't do this because like our thing is collaborative. So like, if you can get the whole team on it, it's better than not. And so it may be that like getting the Linux folks on there changes the game for us, and we can like sell to different clients. But it's also like it makes me wary. Like, I'm glad I have this question, like this, or just this framework. And like, this is basically the, the main thing I took away from the book is like, not asking about like, hey, would you use this? Or do you want this? But it's like, in the past, what have you done that is like this? And then like, <laughs> right. it really uncovers like such a more concrete thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've had such funny pitch meetings with stuff like that, where I like show someone a product and I'm excited and they get all excited. And they're like, this is incredible. I would pay anything for this. Everyone's going to use it. And I was like, like this one person where I realized this, he was just being so over the top. I like it, it set off my bullshit f- sensors. And I was like, there, there's no way this guy is, you know, but he was so excited and passionate and everything you would look for in an early adopter normally. And I was like, 
have you ever Googled for how to do this? And he got so embarrassed. He was like, uh, no, why should I have? And I was like, you can do it already. There's like 10 other products that do this. Like we're not the first. And he was like, oh, I never thought about that. And I was like, you could do it right now. I'll show them to you. And he goes, he goes, no, I actually don't need it that much. And, and he was just having fun in the conversation. I guess he had a boring job and he was just happy to be having like an exciting chat about something. Uh, and so I'm so skeptical. Like I, I, no one's out to get you. Like no one's trying to trick you. They're just like inadvertently tricking you because your excitement and passion is contagious. And so every time, even when people like, I would, you know, if they're like, I would definitely pay for that. I'll pay you. Know, I'm like, really? It's like, you're going to have to prove this. I don't believe you. It's like a good skepticism. Yeah. Well, I just want to call it like a a highlight that I made in the book, which is talking about this thing. And and there's a sentence I loved, which is there's this person referring to the the people that are um, you're interviewing saying they're stuck in the la la land of imagining that they're the sort of person who finds clever ways to solve the petty annoyances of their day. (laughs) Yeah, it's like people will bitch about anything. Oh, I hate email. I would pay a thousand dollars a month to solve email. It's like, well, have you hired a personal assistant? They're like less than a thousand dollars a month. So people think like every problem matters, like entrepreneurs think every problem matters and also customers think every problem matters, but not every problem matters. Like in in Neil Rackham's spin framework, uh, he's like, there's a situation like understanding the customer situation. They've got a problem. Cool. That's step two. But then the third, the crucial one is like, what are the implications of that problem? Is it an important problem or an unimportant problem? Like sometimes my shoelaces come untied. And if you get me amped up, I'll talk about how annoying that is. But like, it's not an important problem. It has very low implications. Um, and I think a lot of uh, customer interviews, and like we validated this with 50 customers. It's like, yeah, the problem exists, but is it an important problem? And I love that you did that with the Linux app. It's like, yeah, they would love to have it, but is it important to them? You got to figure out those implications. Yeah, I had a one one anecdote too. When, when I was thinking about different directions to to pivot level and like maybe you know maybe it's a slack plugin for example that that kind of levelifies your slack team in some way and like i i explored one one thing that constantly came up in conversations people said like it's so annoying i can't send somebody a direct message in slack and it not notify them like i want to be able to send this on the weekend i want to be able to you know maybe off hours and i want to be respectful of people this came up over and over and over again and i started using the question of like well have you searched around for you know searching the plugin directory for a solution to this universally the answer was no (laughs) and then i did my own searching and there's like a very well-designed free plugin that (laughs) does exactly this you can use a slash command send deferred messages so it's like okay there we go like i i was almost ready to say like well maybe i should just build you know prototype this thing everyone's asking for it but then just digging that one layer deeper it's like nobody's searching for it and a free thing already exists boom <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's uh it's so clarifying yeah. but then also it's so hard because like in some cases marketing does win like in some cases you just need to throw a ton of marketing at the problem and it's like this is like the problem that like a lot of nonprofits and like government sponsored like programs to help people out have it's like a great program and when people hear about it they're like i can't believe i didn't know about this like this is amazing So it's like tough. And that's another one of the reasons why like robots can't do entrepreneurship because that's a very human call to make. Like, is it, is it not worth doing because like they haven't bothered to like, you know, is it the product? Is it the messaging? It's hard. Companies have proven that like markets can be educated and like can be taught new concepts or, or convinced that like certain things are a problem. Like I feel like if my barometer is right on this, I feel like in five 
at least five years, like more people will be recognizing that distractions in the workplace are bad and real-time chat is suboptimal in many ways. It's very costly to to kind of infuse the the business culture and get get you know kind of a tipping point of people agreeing that this is a problem and we ought to be changing up our tools to something more favorable to to reducing distractions. It's theoretically possible to do it, but it takes a lot of money and a lot of skill to kind of educate an entire market or invent a new category. And so that's I guess comes down to like does this fit with my ambitions, right? Yeah, it's tough. Um, And it it kind of if you want to tackle those challenges, it pushes you down a different path. Like, you know, you're raising more money, you're doing things a certain way. It's like a lot of the yeah, a lot of the questions get answered for you about how are we going to build this thing? And what's it going to feel like? So Rob, I just checked and and the book came out looks looks like originally in 2014. It's just funny to me because it, it felt like suddenly it had popped into my radar in like a bunch of different ways and a bunch of people were talking about it. And like now I'm like exposed to it. Like, is there a resurgence going on or did it just, just happen to become exposed to me recently? No, it's just very community by community. Um, so my whole thesis with the book, I have a thesis about business books, right? There's different types. There's like infotainment and there's manifestos and blah, blah, blah. But mine specifically like is solving a sharp problem. And my feeling was that... Uh, Throughout the startup journey, like everyone at some point tries to have a customer conversation and it sucks. Or, or, and then they are having beers with a friend or they're talking to their mentor or VC and they're like, this is so hard. And that person goes, ah, I know the answer. It's this book. Um, and so I kind of like semi-consciously, I won't say it was like 100% formed in my mind, but I was like, I had this hunch that like, and that's why I was willing to choose such a stupid title because like the mom test is like, no one's going to discover that through search, right? They have to be recommended through word of mouth. Um, and the reason I was willing to make that call, like against all the advice of the self-publishing folks is like, I figured like no one's going to randomly buy this book. Like they're just not like I wasn't credible enough at the time. Like the topic isn't spicy enough. I was like, the only way they're going to buy this is if someone they trust recommends it to them. So I like, it, that gave me permission to be very like sharp in this way. And that's also why like, in the first draft, I, I talked a lot about like lean startup and MVPs and stuff like that. And I was, I was trying to cover too much territory. And thanks to both proofreaders and also like this, this thesis, I was like, actually, anyone who gets this recommended is already going to know all that stuff. So like, I don't need to cover it. So I just like went in and deleted half the book. And I was like, cool, like, let's just assume all that knowledge already exists. Um, and I can't remember exactly what started me. Oh, yeah. Uh, So that means that its spread is very like pocket by pocket. Like it'll get into one community. So the first community it started was the UK accelerators and Western European accelerators, starting with Seedcamp, who like very generously uh, did a great launch event with me. Like at their big Seedcamp week, there were 500 mentors and investors from all over Western Europe, like basically the, the best people in Europe. Um, Seedcamp let me launch there, um, and we gave away 500 books to each of those people. Well, one book to each of those 500 people. And that started the seed of mouth. And so at the beginning, like 100% of my sales is UK. Now it's like 10%, which is about where it should be, you know, based on population. And I've seen it. It's been like other pockets as well. And I've seen this, like it's translated into a bunch of languages. And with the exception of Russian, there's almost no sales. And Russia is the only place where I went and gave away like 1,000 books. And it's the same thing. That seeds the word of mouth. Um, and I think what's happened here is like, like, you know, like the drip, Amy Hoy, like Brennan Dunn, like that little cluster. Um, I don't think they'd ever bumped into it before, which is funny because I, I grew up with Brennan, but it's just like the book hadn't entered that world, like the bootstrapping micropreneur world. Um, and it sounds like now it's starting to, which is very exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, we'll, we'll see. Anyway, that's the the long winded answer, but cool. hopefully it's a bit of product insight as well. Yeah, no, that's cool, and I'm I'm happy to uh, do our part of exposing it to a new a new group. <laughs> yeah, something funny in Russia um, that really made me feel good is like that not a lot of business books get translated into Russian. So, you know, it's uh, winning by virtue of being uh, in a small pond in terms of business books. And someone said like, oh, how do you feel about this other book? And I was like, I don't know. What is it? And he's like, he says, he says, you're the old guard, that you're the old way. He's like, <laughs> like attacking me as like the outdated, like old fashioned version of customer development. Congratulations. Like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have to reach, uh, you have to reach critical mass before people start attacking you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. Derek, anything else we should cover? Um, no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's most of my, my notes I had jotted down. But so, I mean, can I, ask, uh, can I ask you guys? You've got a bunch of uh, business experience now. You've got your, your tech chops. Like, given that it's not practical to get perfect information from talking to people, and given that talking to people does take a lot of time and it is a bit of a pain, it's like, how would you like realistically work this into your next business if you were starting one? Would you give it like, 10% time, 50% time? Would it be like prototype first? Like, how would you think about it? Derek, this has got to be super relevant to you. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, even just in these last few weeks, because I'm trying, kind of trying to, to very methodically and carefully step my way back into that. That's kind of the phase I'm in right now. And it's actually an open question for me. If one of my criteria is that I want to be, a, whatever I build, I want to be able to build an MVP of it within say one to two months, like something that is achievable in a really short period of time where I could start, you know, charging for at least a kernel of the idea and then build out from there. An open question I have, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts is like, yeah, how much time should I spend having these conversations or should I just form a hypothesis serving a market that I know really well that I'm part of, you know, something scratching my own itch or whatever. So that I have a pretty, pretty good idea that like, this is a problem that is worth solving and then just kind of build the prototype and see how it tests it out in the market and see how it sells, you know? And so I'm trying to balance like, well, if, if I can get it out that quickly, should I be spending a lot of time trying to do conversations as well? And I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some cases, talking to people would take more time than just building it. Right. The thing with, I don't know, I, I, I struggle about this also. Like I, I have a little, um, like I'm just finishing up uh, another book now about education and running workshops. And so I'm also looking at what do I do next? And I'm ready to get back to tech. It's been a while since I coded. I'm excited to build some stuff. Um, and similarly, I want to build little things, you know, uh, little standalone things that fit together in this like constellation of cross-promoting whatevers. Um, and some of them are like a week to develop. And in that case, like, what do you do? How do you even think about that? But then I also know my scheduling is terrible so that we could easily stretch into two months once I actually like start to build the thing. And then you're, you're like, it's sunk cost. You're like, oh, well, I'm already building it. So I got to keep going. So I'm aware of that. Um, and also though, one other thing I think is uh, building a product, you get like binary feedback. They either like, you either nailed it or you didn't. Um, but it doesn't necessarily like help you get pointed more in the right direction. So, hmm. I don't know. I, I I think you need to understand your customers well enough to um, know how they make their decisions and how they spend their day and their time and their money. Uh, and if you have that already, I think, and the product's small, I think, sure, just build it. Uh, if you don't know how they think and how they make their decisions, you don't have a good mental model of your customers. Yeah. I'd be, I, I, yeah, I think you're working uphill then. And you really want to talk to a couple of them before you uh, before you start building things. Yeah. And I think like, 
something I'm going to do this time around is have a really strong idea of what very narrow niche I want to target. I think you touch on this in the book a bit about like niching down strongly, because if I, for example, say I was building like some some small marketing tool targeted at um, developers. If I were just building like an iteration of whatever this marketing tool is that could maybe apply to non-technical marketers and technical marketers, then they would have a different set of needs, get jazzed up about different types of features. But if I knew like, well, this is what developers want out of this type of tool set. Um, and then if I talked to a few developers and had kind of the mom test conversations and verified that like, yep, it seems like this is a real pain for that very narrow niche, then I feel like I can get, I can get confidence quicker because I know that like, you know, developers tend to value similar things. Like it's just, so having fewer conversations, I think could, could still be okay because it's just such a narrow, narrow targeted niche, as opposed to trying to say like, does this tool broadly apply to any, anyone doing marketing? Well, then, then it's harder to get a, a, a good sense because everyone has, it comes from a different perspective. And if it's too broad, also your data from the conversation just makes no sense. You talk to 10 people and like, Two of them completely love it. Four people are like kind of okay about it. And like four people won't give you the time of day. You're like, what, what sense do I make? And I think a huge mistake people make is they try to turn these early conversations into percentages. They go, oh, only 20% of people really care. So we got to give it away. It's like, no, that's stupid. You've completely misread that data. Like, is there something that that makes those two different from the other eight? Maybe that's your real segment. So it's like, yeah, I don't trust, like, this kind of goes back to what you asked about statistical significance as well. There's, like, just so many ways to screw that up. <laughs> like, if you're not, like, don't have a perfect segment, and how are you going to have a perfect segment before you start? That's something you discover by doing it. It's these things that it's, like, whatever. You're, you're, you're putting the understanding into your head, and then you're making an emotional decision. It's, like, entrepreneurs still a, uh, entrepreneurship's still a, a human art. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. I think it is more art than science, which is which is kind of, it's frustrating on for a left-brained, you know, like very rational, logical developer. <laughs> but it's kind of something that we have to accept. And and it is kind of, entrepreneurship is inherently a little bit irrational. Like <laughs> it's not, like you can't fully justify it as a something that you can totally de-risk. Like there's always going to be risk built in, right? So it's just a matter of, of doing these things to try to try to mitigate your risk as much as possible. Exactly. I'm excited to have this as a tool in the toolbox. Like I said, I've, I've started using it for not like full-on products, but like pieces of things we might do, like this Linux client. I've been considering starting an, a, a different podcast. And so, you know, my, my initial impulse was like, hey, would you listen to a podcast about XYZ? First, <laughs> and now it's like, hey, what podcast do you listen to now? And then yeah. see how... Why it, those? How did you yeah. find them? Like, why did you choose them? When's the last time you added a new one? Yeah. That yeah. Which ones did you start listening to and then stop? Whoa, why did you stop it? There's totally. like, you can pull on this thread so much. This concept kind of rewired my brain around validating this stuff. And so I, it's, it feels just like a useful new way of thinking about things that's, that I'm putting in the, on the tool belt. So I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad I have it. Cool. And uh, if anyone else wants to check it out, the, the book's momtestbook.com. Totally off topic, but if you happen to ever run workshops or you're interested in that sort of thing, the new book's workshopsurvival.com. Nice. Very cool. And yeah, where can people keep up with you, Rob? Are you on Twitter? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, robfitz.com has links to everything. Um, I do a very occasional kind of uh, blast about whatever I'm thinking or working on. Um, and that's kind of it. I'm, I'm technically on social media, but extremely inactive. And uh, I'm in Barcelona. You can find me there. <laughs> <laughs> How's Barcelona? 
I mean, brilliant. That's awesome. Good place for developers. Like if you're a freelancer anywhere in the world and you want to move to Barcelona, you'll have an incredible life at lower costs. And it's great. Um, there's also good tech talent out here. Um, there's some problems like the, the legal structures for setting up a company and stuff are pretty painful. I'm going through that at the moment. But yeah, quality of life's incredible. Development talent's great. Um, lifestyle's awesome. It's like sunny, whatever, every day. Awesome. <laughs> it's great. Very nice. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Rob. It was great talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Show notes, Mr. Derek? Show notes can be found at artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.